first one. <clears throat> Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, your God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of his angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Our great God, our Holy Father, our loving Father, we humbly come before you now as we open your word together, longing to hear from you, longing to and know something more about you and your Son and your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that as we do that today, you would also teach us something about ourselves. That we would see, that we would savor, that we would declare Christ, but we would recognize that we deserve judgment. And yet, your grace has abounded. So Lord, as we listen Help us to hear your voice. Help us to um, apply it to our hearts. That when we leave here, we will seek your glory in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Chapel Street. Good morning to the folks online and those that will listen uh, later on the podcast. Um, it's good to be back. I feel like I've not stood here for months, so... Um, had to kind of look back at what we, we did in Hebrews last time, uh, but it's good to be back. I want to thank you as well for praying for me when, uh, and the family when we had COVID, but also for the men's weekend away. I don't know why anyone wants to camp out in minus five, but we certainly had a good time around the fire with the word. So thanks for your prayers. 
So here we are back in the book of Hebrews. Um, and I do want to remind us, as I said, of what we studied last time. And it's necessity in terms of knowing Christ. Um, this is a book written probably in AD 60, although there is a debate about that. Um, prior to the fall of Jerusalem, when the Christians in Israel, at least, but possibly in Jerusalem itself, were going through hardship, were experiencing uh, persecution of different kinds, and were struggling to uh, perhaps keep the faith. And consequently, the book has three main themes running throughout it. The first, and perhaps in one sense, the most important and the biggest, is the supremacy of Christ. If you're concerned about what the word supremacy means, think of the word supreme. As I've said before, numero one. The better is another way of looking at it. The best way to look at it is Jesus is the best, the best. But the book is also about enduring, understandably, given the situation that the Christians in Israel were finding themselves in. And it's the same for us today. We have to endure, to persevere, to keep the faith, to run the race set before us amongst those cloud of witnesses that we've been reminded about there. And it's a book also for us that has warnings. Warnings that we need to heed. Warnings that are controversial in terms of whether we're a Christian or not. Is that they're important warnings? Would you agree? They're really important. So we need to heed them. So we need to see the supremacy of Christ. We need to persevere and hear about how the word encourages us to do that. But we also need to heed these warnings today. The last time I suggested that the basic idea I wanted us to try and get out of the verse, or the verses, was that. We need to know the right Jesus. <laughs> we need to recognize him as God. You know, Romans talks about um, even though they knew God, they didn't worship him as God. And we need to know Jesus as God to worship him correctly. Because if we get that right, then our worship will be placed in the right place in Christ. If we don't understand who Christ is, then our worship will be largely meaningless. And that there were three points. I think there are seven that are gathered together, but we, we did three last time. We're going to do three today, and then hopefully one uh, next time we're here. And the three points last time was that whilst in the Old Testament, Jesus is talked about and prophesied about, in these last times, he's the one speaking. Now, in a sense, he's always spoken. And then the writer goes into these three things and says who he is. And the first one is that Jesus is the son and the heir, the son of God, who is to inherit all things, even though they already belong to him. He's going to inherit them. And we also learned that Jesus is the creator. I want to say Jesus, not just God. I want us to understand that Jesus, the Christ, is the creator. The word of God speaks and creation comes into existence. And I marvel about that all the time because I speak and seldom does anything happen. We also learned that Jesus is the radiance 
of the glory of God. And the Greek word there means reflect. And I, I spoke about that last time and somebody rightly corrected me afterwards and reminded me that it's a little bit more than reflect. It's not just a mirror that catches the sun and reflects it as a kind of conduit on the wall. The word also means, means effulgence. If you don't know what that means, like me, um, you can look it up, but it literally means, in this case, Christ shines forth in his person the glory of God. He's the source of that glory, and he's the one shining it forward. And if we get that right, we put him in the right place, don't we? Not some kind of half God that's just expressing bits about God. He's the very source of it, radiating God, Godness, goodness, holiness, God's character to the world as a man. And this week, um, we're going to take the next three. And I think I said the first time we looked at this word that we were going to sometimes we're going to go slow and sometimes we're going to go fast. Sometimes we're going to cover, cover a little bit of scripture and sometimes we're going to cover a lot more. Today we're going dead slow. <laughs> In fact, I don't know if we could go any slower because we're just going to look at one verse. In fact, it's not even the whole verse that we're looking at. So that's super dead slow. But there's just so much in it that I felt like it was important to really um, pull it out for us. My eyesight seems to be failing. I'll see if these help at all. Oh, there we go. So let's look at verse three together. We must look at the word together. So read along. I want to go over this many times to make sure it's really in our head and in our heart and that we leave the building with it. So verse three, he referring to Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high we'll pause there it shouldn't be hard to see what the three points are so we'll get straight into them the first one is simply this jesus is the exact imprint of his nature god's nature jesus is the exact imprint of god's nature and it's really easy to misinterpret this to get it wrong to think that because the word print is there or imprint it might be that somehow jesus is just an impression think about printing of god that he's somehow a stamp or a copy of god Somehow he might just be kind of made in God's image the way that we are made in God's image and bear something of God's character. But that's actually not what it means. It literally means that Jesus is the same being God. Facsimile might be the, the correct word in the Latin but the word here that's used in the Greek and this hopefully will explain a lot of it is character character and it's not hard to guess where that word goes in history it goes into the latin into the french and it comes to the english so much of the good words in our english language come that way and it becomes the word character but in the old ancient world character was actually interestingly a stamp 
was a tool for stamping an engraved image onto, in, in most cases, a musical instrument. <laughs> well, you just told me, Sam, that it, Jesus isn't a stamp. He isn't a, a, an engraved image in the form of God that's uh, perhaps a little bit like him. Well, what I want you to understand is this phrase, exact imprint, literally means the exact expression of God. It's an ancient phrase, exact imprint or um, character. Not a partial expression, not a little piece of God, but Jesus is just God in this particular way. Maybe his attitude or his heart or his, his, uh, the way he lived. Not a veiled expression of God, that God is somehow in him, but we can't really see it all. And there is a sense in which that's true but the exact expression of who God is, the exact imprint of the nature of God. Now, as you know, some of us are involved in screen printing and I won't bore you with the process, but fundamentally there's a piece of artwork, beautiful artwork that is turned into a screen and we force ink through it and it's impressed upon a garment. And it's repeated and repeated and repeated. That's not Christ. That's an impression of something good. <laughs> it's not the good thing. But in Christ, he is the good thing. And he is the exact imprint. Do you understand? The two are the same. And it's just a phrase that's used in the ancient world. And it can mislead us uh, greatly. Jesus is both, as it were, the work of art and the exact expression of that as a man. And listen, scripture testifies to it everywhere. In fact, uh, when I went to kind of look it up, I like to read all the verses that come up, but there's only 100 plus of them. So I didn't go through them all, and we're not going to go through them all now. Um, but I'll give you just a few. In Colossians, the writer Paul says in chapter 119, for in Christ, in Jesus, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Did you hear what he said? He didn't just say the fullness of God, which would have been enough. He says all, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus Christ, God dwelt fully. And if that wasn't enough, Paul says it again in chapter two. He says it this way, for in Christ, the whole fullness, <laughs> you almost can't express it enough, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so Jesus isn't a little bit God. He is God. And we say it this way. He's fully man and fully God. Exact imprint. Titus tells it this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Amen. Training us. This is interesting. The gospels training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying there that our God's going to appear. And Jesus Christ is going to appear. He's saying our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus is God. The two are one because he's the exact imprint 
of his nature. You might say, well, what's the big deal, Sam? Why are you making such a, a meal over this? Why are you laboring this point? Why does it matter that Jesus is the exact expression of God? Well, it's important to express him as God, to know him as God. You know, sometimes when we're trying to share the gospel and people might ask, you know, why Jesus? What's the difference between him and us? We'll come out with things like, well, he was uh, sinless. We might come out with, well, he was totally obedient. And we might even come out with, well, he needed to be infinitely more valuable, of greater worth than the penalty to please the Father by dying on a cross. And that's true. But the question we need to ask is, why is he those things? Why is he infinitely valuable? Why is he sinless? Why was he 100% obedient? And the, question, the answer to that question is, because he's God. That's why the incarnation matters. That's why the virgin birth matters. It's not just a man. He is God as a man. The fullness of God dwelt in him completely and perfectly. And so he was the only one who could drink from the cup of wrath, wasn't he? And James and John, uh, quite embarrassingly in a way, rock up to the Lord at some point and say, listen, can we sit on your right and your left in heaven? Okay. The Lord says to them, are you able to drink from the cup that I drink from? And then he says to them, even so, you will drink from it. You will be judged. That's what the cup of wrath is. You will be judged. But you're not able. Without me, you're not able. But Christ is able. Why? Because he's God. Not just because he's sinless, perfect, but because he's God. He is those things because he's God. It's so important to get that right, to get this picture right about the true expression of who Jesus Christ is. You know, there's so many religions out there, many of whom purport to be Christian, many of whom purport to be the only Christian church, right? I'm not going to name them. You can think who they are. But they make Jesus out to be something less than God. In some cases, they make him out to be nothing more than an angel, which interestingly, if you read on in Hebrews, is what they deal with, what the writer deals with. Jesus isn't an angel. He's made lower them than them. In some cases, those religious groups argue that Jesus becomes a kind of God, a son of God in a different way, and that he wasn't, but he gets into that kind of status at some point. But you know, if you have a God like that, you have a God who isn't sinless. You have a God who doesn't fully obey. And so the cross is emptied of its power. Do you see? If Jesus isn't God. The cross isn't going to save people or fulfill the law. So that's point number one. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Point number two, back to verse three again. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. In a literal sense, what the writer is saying here is Jesus holds the universe together. He upholds it and makes sure that everything that is happening in it is in accordance with his sovereign will. He keeps it together. And you might say, well, what if mankind decides to explode the earth with uh, nuclear bombs and so on? Well, 
that's Jesus's will, that'll happen. But if it's not, it won't because he upholds the universe. And the question is, well, how does he do that? And the answer there in the text is quite straightforward. By the word of his power. Now, the word that's used here for word is not the one that you might think. It's not logos, which Jesus is himself, which you might see as the kind of seed of reason, the truth, the expression of, of who God really is. It's actually a word in the Greek, which is rima or rema. And it means the actual act of speaking. He upholds the universe by the actual act of speaking his power. You see the richness of that? He's speaking, he's uttering. Utterance is another uh, translation of that. In some cases, narration, talking history into the cosmos and upholding and, and keeping it together on the basis of that. In fact, he uses the very same word himself. In Matthew 4, when he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, great, good on you, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, every utterance of God speaking through his word in history, through the prophets, and now in his last times through Jesus Christ, if you will, through all of those things. It's the same idea in that text. He upholds the word through speaking. Now, I'd love to know what he's actually saying, right? We know that it's in the word. It's all of the word. But I think one of the things he's saying is, this is mine. This is my creation. You can do what you want, but I will only let that happen if it works with my will. And I'm working out my will for my glory. And it will work because I'm God and I'm powerful and I'll keep on uttering and uttering and uttering. And for what it's worth, the breath that you breathe now is uttered by that word of power. You have life because he upholds the universe together. Elsewhere in the word, I can't recall exactly where right now it says that he, possibly Psalm, holds the world in the universe in the span of his hand. Upholds it. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? The universe was created by a word or words. It's held together by words, by utterance. It will be recreated by his word. Why? Because he's God, because he has power, because he has all power, because the fullness of God dwells in him. I was in uh, the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineer cadets army corps when i was a kid it was an enforced thing i didn't want to do it jeff sorry about that but it was one of those things you had to do and i didn't uh, enjoy it one bit but we had a sergeant major and i swear this man had supernatural powers it was really quite a force um and he would he would do all kinds of things to control us and to frighten us and to you know whip us into shape and one of the things he would say all the time to enforce his authority and power was simply this. Nothing happens around here without my say-so. And that's pretty much the way it was around him. Nothing happened around there without his say-so. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. That's his utterance, isn't it? Nothing happens around here without my say-so. I'm the sovereign God. That's the thing I want to utter. 
That's the thing you need to hear. I'm managing and controlling and bringing out the outcome of this history you're part of for my end. And we said, someone said earlier, God is sovereign. He is. That means he's king. The king rules. The king runs the kingdom. And that is what God is doing. So Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And lastly, number three, Jesus is the one who makes purification for sins. Let's just read it again. Verse three, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And listen, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, for some of us, that phrase, purification for sins, uh, might not mean much. So I'll try and explain that a little. It's an Old Testament priestly language. And incidentally, uh, most of the first part of Hebrews is taken up with explaining it. So we'll get into it in more detail in time. But it's a, la a sacrificial language part of the Old Testament sacrificial um, system that makes payment for sin. So God instituted the sacrificial system where an animal, in simple terms, an animal would be put to death and the blood, the life force, if you will, of the animal would be sprinkled and, and on the altar and various things would happen. I won't go into it all right now. For the payment for the sins of the people of Israel. And the thing about that was the priest was the person that brought the blood and sprinkled the blood. But it had to be done again. And again. And again. And again. And it never stopped having to be done. So the Old Testament sacrificial system did something, but it took an animal that was, in, in, in theory, spotless and pure and clean and died for that sin, but it just wasn't enough to pay for it fully. But when Christ had made purification for sins, he sat down with the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, what is this saying? Is this simply saying that when Jesus took a lamb and slaughtered it and uh, dipped the blood and, and, and sprinkled the blood for the atonement of sins, somehow that was enough? Well, in one sense, yes. But what we need to understand is this. He is the priest. In fact, Hebrews will talk about him being the great high priest, brought the sacrifice to God. But the sacrifice was him. He was the lamb. What, is, what does John say when he's baptizing? Behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, not the Lamb of the earth, who takes away the sins of the world. Not just covers them in the Old Testament. It's the, the principle of blood covering, just as in the Passover, the blood over the door lintels covers the people, sacrificial death of the Lamb. But it takes away the sins of the world. And when Jesus had done that, he didn't need doing again because it's God. Because his worth, his value is enough to satisfy the law for all 
times. In fact, on the cross, his last words are, it's finished. It's done. It's complete. You don't need another lamb. I've done it because I'm God. I'm valuable enough to fulfill the law by dying for the sin of the world in accordance with it and being judged by the Father. Hebrews puts it like this in chapter 10. But when Christ had offered, listen, for all time, one single sacrifice for sins, he sat down the right hand of God and we have the same thing this idea of Jesus pure, making purification for sins and sitting down what does that mean it means it's done that work is finished the same way that we sit down when our work is finished but he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high heaven and that phrase the right hand of the majesty on high is simply the place of honor. The one that should be honored sits in the place of honor. It's the place of authority. And it's the place of power. And I want to say to you, and to myself, we need to utter that. We need to express that. Jesus sits in the highest place. Because every knee is going to bow, isn't it? Every tongue is going to confess who he is to the glory of the Father. The Lamb of God. So that's what that means. Because he'd finished the work, he'd pleased the Father. One person put it like this. It's a declaration. Christ sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high is a declaration of how perfect Christ's work of purification of sin really was. If he hadn't have done it, he wouldn't be sitting at the right hand. If he wasn't uh, rich enough in terms of his intrinsic value, his infinite value, then he wouldn't be sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now just think, this may blow your mind, I don't know, but think about Jesus upholding the universe by the utterance of his word in power. We're breathing, we're living, the sun is coming up, the planets are still turning, the sun hasn't been extinguished. And in the middle of that story, he appears. Just think of the concept. That's extraordinary, isn't it? He's upholding this story, this universe, this history, and he enters into it. He's found in appearance as a man in the middle of this story. You know why? Because it's his story. It's about him. It's all about him. And he shows up makes purification for sin so that we can know him, so that the Father can be satisfied, so that his righteousness can be revealed, his wrath can be revealed, his love can be revealed, his grace and his mercy and his peace can be revealed, so that we know what redemption looks like, we know what a ransom is, we understand the penalty and the cost. He shows up in his story so that we can understand who he really is and that's why hebrews starts with that who he is and what he's done did you see it all did you see all of the things he is he's the one speaking now that's what the bible's saying there he's the one speaking pay attention to him he's going to enforce that idea again and again as we go through this book 
And this is who he is. He's the sun, he's the air, he's the creator, he's the radiance of glory, of God's glory. Do you see him? Then he says, and this is what he did. Purification for sins. Sat down at the right hand of the Father. What do you make of who Jesus is? What do you make of what he has done? And what we think about who Jesus is must be directed by the word of God. We mustn't just invent it. That's what other religions are, really. They're just inventing God. We mustn't try and pull it out of the numinous ether of the atmosphere. It comes from the word of God. And as I said at the beginning, what we make of him, who we think he is, what we think about what he's done will affect how we worship him, won't it? Do you agree? It really will. Many years ago, and I suspect I was probably 16, I uh, made the mistake of thinking I would learn how to play the guitar. And I lived in this great big long road and practiced guitar every day or night. But I was getting really good at it, which wasn't true. Um, but I had the volume up really loud. I never thought for one minute what the neighbors might be thinking. And one day I walked down the road and this uh, gentleman who was a few doors down, beautiful man, um, whose name was John, said, oh, you play the guitar. I thought, oh, no, this is it. I'm going to get judged a bit by this man. And I said, oh, yeah, that, that is me. And he said, well, I play the drums. Do you want to come and play with me? Do you want to come and jam with me, as the expression is? And I said, yeah, okay. And so I did. I went and played the guitar with him. He was a lovely man. He was a family man with young kids at the time. And he'd get the drums out, and i get my guitar out, and we'd make terrible noise together. And I do that every few weeks. I'd pop around there and have a cup of tea. And, you know, I even remember them cooking dinner for me one time. And we listened to music together. And, you know, it, it was pretty cool. And one day I was parked at the side of the road. And I was looking in my wing mirror and I could see John coming up to the car. Dressed in blue. And I'd been speeding, and here he was, this man that I thought I knew was a policeman. <laughs> I didn't know that until this point. And I thought, oh, this is slightly awkward. This is embarrassing, right? This man who I just thought was a drummer, I thought maybe he's an electrician or something, was a policeman. And there he was to book me. And I thought, well, that's okay. He knows me. I know him. We play musical instruments together. This will be all right. But it wasn't. He upheld the law. He's a man of integrity. And he booked me. You know, when you get booked, I don't know if it's the same here, uh, but in the UK, you get a penalty notice. Is that what you get here? Some of you have been booked. You get a penalty notice with a fine. The fine is the actual penalty, right? The thing you have to pay. And John had judged me fairly in accordance with the word of the law. And that was what he'd upheld. He could have said, oh, Sam, it's you. Go on, on your way, son. Don't do it again. But he didn't. He upheld the word of the law. And I thought I knew who he was, the little drummer down the road, but he was a policeman. Policeman. And we can be like that with Jesus. We can think we know him. The world does in some regard, historically. 
He was just a man that maybe was a good politician, spoke well, maybe he could do miracles, said great things, went against the uh, rulers of the day, a great kind of kickback guy, knew how to push back. Well, we need to know who he really is because he's the judge. He's the judge that will bring the penalty notice. Now, I know he has taken a penalty, but for those that aren't in Christ, that penalty notice still remains. And it's a debt that cannot be paid because you're not a spotless lamb, because you're not infinitely good, because you weren't born without sin, because your intrinsic value and worth is not enough to pay for your sin. Another analogy related to speeding might be that if you get caught speeding, and I did, obviously, I got caught speeding here too. Not good, not a good uh, a witness at all. Um, you might say, well, look, what if I drive around at five kilometers below the speed limit for the rest of my life? Will that undo just that one event? No, it won't. It won't change it at all. It's happened. It's in history. It's real. It was a penalty. It's the same with Christ. He is the judge. And because of that, we must, must, must pay attention. For the Father, Jesus says himself, judges no one. Oh, that sounds good. Because he's given all judgment to the Son. You know what for? He says, so that all will honor the Son. The apostles in the first century understood the same thing. Peter says, he, that's Christ, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus isn't just a great teacher, a miracle worker. He's God. And so just like I didn't know John and I got a shock. Do I know Jesus? Am I going to get a shock? Or do I really know who he is? Because he's the son and the heir. Amen? He's the creator. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the utterance of the word of his power. He's the one who has made purification for sins. And he sits right now at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know what? He's coming back. He's coming back to judge. And if you go, if he tarries, if you leave, it's appointed for man. It's in Hebrews, it's appointed for man to live once and then to die and be he's the one who will judge the living and the dead and so if you do not know this real jesus as god if you do not understand these things and see them i beg you now come and see god in christ jesus dying on the cross for you for you Recognize first who he is, where he is, what he is, what he's done, and then recognize who you are 
in the light of that, in the context of that, and come and say, I know who you are now. Confess who he is. King of glory, the king of grace, and repent and ask for mercy. And guess what? When that judgment comes, the Lord Jesus will say, this is one of my own. I died for this one and they came to me. Let them enter their rest with me. It's the best way to start a letter, isn't it? To talk about Christ like that. It's just, and I think that's the way we should think. We should start by thinking about Jesus, who he is, what he's like, what he's done. He's coming again. He's a great judge. He loves you. He utters and the world is upheld by his power. It's an amazing way to begin a letter. And I pray that you will begin your letter of life every day like that, reminding yourself of who he is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, uh, we just acknowledge your son. He is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Father, we just want to acknowledge again who he is. He's God. I think of the hymn so often says, very God, truly God. The exact imprint of your nature, the perfect character. We acknowledge again, Lord, that he uh, dies for the purification of sins and brings you glory. We acknowledge again, dear Lord, that the work is finished on the cross, that all sin is atoned for, and we can enter in because of that. And Father, if there be anyone amongst us here today or online or listening another time that does not truly know your son in that way, I pray that you would remove scales from eyes and that people would turn and see the majesty, majesty, of Christ Jesus and be saved. And all Chapel Street said, Amen.